Welcome back. This is episode 75 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. And this episode we have a bit of a mix of papers and things, right? Not a uh, traditionally organized thematic, thematic, uh, what's the word? Thematic, maybe? For like every, that's a ticket, that's a one. There's no yeah. theme. No. Completely devoid of one, in fact. Other than reptiles? Yeah. Yeah. We're not doing a podcast on the intricacies of airplane engines. That would be too much of a jarring shock for our listeners. But yeah, it's all about and reptiles. Me. We got um, some sort of horrible goings on with toads and snakes, followed by some stuff about the reptile trade, finished off with a. Uh, New species, which I won't ruin by mentioning here now, but it's quite a funny little creature. Oh, it's great. Oh, yeah. We got a tree. Firm favourite type of snake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm good. It'll be good. It'll be a good episode. Um, I've had a great week. I've seen loads of snakes this week. I'm buzzing off the week I've had. I've seen some adders. I've seen a surprising amount of Escalapian snakes, given the fact that it's towards the back end of September. Um, had a few cool recaptures of snakes, recaught some snakes which I hadn't seen for two years. And they'd grown, and they looked well, and uh, it was just nice to see little sort of hmm. snaky characters who I met as babies, having grown up, survived, not really gone very far, or perhaps they've gone and then come back, who knows. But um, yeah, it's, it's been a good week. Some nice sort of two, three-year-old Escalapian snakes that I marked as hatchlings reappearing, which is quite gratifying. Yeah, I guess you'll get some insights into how far they go when they're all grown up a little later, right? Hopefully, that would be really cool, yeah. We can only hope we've got two more yeah. years, so yeah, that'd yeah, be sweet. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So, should we get on to the first paper? Yeah, happily. Okie dokie. Uh, so, this one's by Bringso, Suthan Thangjai, Suthan Thangjai, and Nimnuam. 2020, Eviscerated Alive, Novel and Macabre. September 11th, 2020. So recent, recent. So like two weeks two and a bit and weeks and this one's been doing the rounds on social media because it is so grisly um, and the title is Eviscerated Alive Novel and Macabre Feeding Strategy in Oligodon Fasciolatus Eating Organs of Datafrinus Melanistictus in Thailand mm-hmm. published in Herpetozoa yeah yeah I think macabre is the best word to describe this note and, and what was observed by these authors truly it is um, yeah I suppose gruesome would be would be another gruesome, um, um, but macabre's got a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi about it, yeah, right? Yeah, gruesome, ghoulish, macabre, ghoulish. sinister. <laughs> um, yeah, these work, but also fascinating, in a morbid sense. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely fascinating on multiple levels. Actually, there's there's a number of implications here which you kind of need i think watching any animal eat another animal is like inherently slightly uncomfortable because you're just like you know human beings have empathy and so most for the most yeah. part yeah you get the odd one or two that, that you know well we won't get into that but anyway i think you know you feel for the animal being preyed upon obviously like there is a kind of absolutely there is a kind of uh perspective element i mean i saw a funny meme recently which was just like watching it was like pictures of a guy and in the top caption he's like sad and it says watching zebras get eaten by lions on a documentary about zebras <laughs> and then the second picture is this guy like grinning and it's like 
watching zebras get eaten by lions in a documentary about lions <laughs> so it's like well, exactly. you've got to pick a yeah. team there's always good <laughs> exactly it's all a matter of perspective yeah. right? but uh yeah i mean certainly in this case it's undeniable that it's grizzly but before we get into the the what's and the where's and the how's and the why's let's talk a little bit about this genus oligodon aka kukri mm. snakes who we've spoken about on the podcast a little bit recently uh, because of their specialized teeth but they're a bunch of yes small medium and they came up gone Previously, because of the the fighting or or combat. That's right. And before that, on something to do with territoriality and defending turtle nests, I believe it was. Yeah. 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 And I think there's been a species of bi-week at some point. We've definitely had an oligodon, I think. Yeah. 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 So, speaking of species, there's 80 species of oligodon. And they're small to medium-sized snakes. And as a genus, they range all the way from the Middle East around in Afghanistan, all the way east and south to Indonesia. And in this case, we're talking about Oligodon fasciolatus, the small banded kukri snake. And fasciolatus, this specific epithet, is actually rooted in Latin. Fasciolatus, which is the diminutive form of fascia, meaning belt, which alludes to the banded pattern of this species. Now, I don't know that 100%, but that's what those words mean. And the snake is like banded. So we're going to go ahead and assume that's right. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I found there's no reason to doubt yeah, it. There's another species. There's a species of catfish with the sign with the species is fasciolatus. And that was the description given for that. So I'm just going to extrapolate that to the snake. And um, yeah, I think that's any flack yeah. that flies, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. I tried. Um, and yeah, they're famous. So another... Im- Go on. So I was going to say, another important distinguishing feature for these little oligodons, mm. they don't uh, they don't really have a neck. They just go body into head. Their, their head isn't distinct whatsoever, so you just have this tube that ends in a mouth. Yeah, it kind of gives them like a slightly menacing element. Which is kind of amusing. Like, they look yeah, sort I, of yeah, stocky, yeah. like a bare-knuckle boxer of snakes. Although... Yes. Oops. Yeah, they look sort of built. Yeah. I mean, that um, analogy falls down pretty quickly, but they do look kind of menacing. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think the knowledge, certainly I've, we've, you, you and I both have seen these snakes, and I think the knowledge of their teeth does kind of hinge on the way you treat them when you see them. You really don't want to get caught by those teeth. No. And they're famous for these teeth. It's why they're called kukri snakes. They've given, they were given that name because of the similarity of those teeth to the kukri knives, which are curved blades used by the Nepali-speaking Gurkhi soldiers who famously, well, they're famous warriors. Gurkha. Yeah, the, the Gurkhas. They, um, yeah. 100,000 of them fought in World War One and another 100,000 in World War Two on the side of the Allies. Um, very well known. There's a museum dedicated to them here in the UK. And yeah, they're, they're blades and the teeth. So they're, the, they're on the upper jaw of these teeth and they're towards the back. So they're like, you know, your kind of rear fang teeth. And... Uh, yeah, they use these teeth for a variety of things. As we know, they use them in combat and some snakes use them to slice through eggs to get to the insides. And if they bite a person, there's a lot of blood and it doesn't stop bleeding. And it's thought that that's because of the divernoise gland, the kind of colubrid equivalent of a venom gland, which produces anticoagulant secretions. So if you get caught by one of these snakes, you're going to bleed for a while, um, which is pretty cool. Pretty useful adaptation to have. Yeah, yeah. Pretty versatile too. Mm. And this one, the small-banded kukri snake, Oligodon fasciolatus, is found in Thailand, so it coexists with you, Ben. And also Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. And this paper is set in northeast Thailand, isn't it? Yes, it's 
pretty much directly north of where I am by about three degrees north. Three degrees north? Not that that really helps people not familiar with where I am <laughs> identify where this is. But yeah, top, uh, what's that, north, east. Yeah. Just, uh, it's just south of the, the Lao border, right? Yeah, in a place near Loe. If you know Loe, you know where this is. No. I don't either. <laughs> and what's interesting about this is that it actually took place in a kind of farm environment. The environment is cultivated land near human habit- habitation. And actually two of the authors, um, Manirat and Winai Suthan Thangjai, are actually the uh, owners of the property, which is pretty cool. So, you know, they had the foresight and wherewithal to see something cool going on with animals on their property and, yeah, get it written up as a note, which is well, it's not even a note quite, is it? It's like a it's a fully-fledged... Well, I suppose it is an observational note, but it's pretty well fleshed out with... It is a note, yeah, but it's a substantial note. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Lots of background yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. It's, it's nice. Um, and yeah, so the prey, that's the predator. The prey in this environment, in this instance, is Dutterphrynus melanostictus. Mm, the old, Asian common toad. Yeah, basically the Asian Classic. answer to a cane toad, isn't it? In many ways. Big giant uh, poisonous toad. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I always it's just. I think I probably think that partially also because of its status as an invasive species in Madagascar. I think there's yeah, that parallel as well. Well, that's what I was thinking. Is like, what makes it more like a cane toad than say a common toad? And the answer is probably not much. True. I think it is that it's that invasive um, consistency there that's like okay, yeah, that's yeah, similar in that regard. But. Much like they can cause trouble when put in the wrong place. Oh, totally. And much like our common toads, they are poisonous. They have bufotoxins, which they can squirt out of their paratoid glands. And it's not very nice. It could actually potentially kill a human. Yes. And so that's the kind of setting of this showdown that's about to take place. You've got a snake with crazy sharp teeth and a poisonous toad, which doesn't want to be eaten. And yeah, should we get into the observations? I mean, I think so. I think that's it's, the the more discussion stuff comes once people know what's going on. Yeah. With with this oligodon, right? Yeah, totally. And we have four four observations. Yeah. One, I think we just mentioned quite briefly, where a oligodon simply consumed a smaller, uh, presumably juvenile toad, and just consumed it whole. Okay, nothing nothing particularly to write home about. Their standard snake predation event. Yeah. Exactly. Boring. Well, <laughs> well, boring in context. It's not why people read this. It's not why this paper is blowing up on social media. Right. It? True. Yeah. The other observations, so pretty grisly. That's yeah. I love this first line in the uh, the description of the first observation. The toad was dead upon the observer's arrival, but the soil around the two animals was bloody, indicating there had been a fight. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, exactly. It just draws you in. It's like you set it? the scene. I like that a lot. So, yeah, the first observation basically, they showed up late and they found this snake. It was using its rear fangs to slice and dice the flank of this toad before eating small pieces of organs. The toad was already dead, though. So, they didn't actually see quite what had gone down. They were left to only imagine based on the blood scattered around, what is it, like five yeah. meters around? There's blood splattered all over the place. So they're kind of thinking at this point, right, something's gone down here. We can't be quite sure what. I mean, there's a novel observation anyway of a snake slicing open the toad and busting its head in. Not many snakes are eating their prey, anything other than whole. So that's cool. 
But that was in 2016. And so we fast forward four years to April of 2020. And another instance of this battle was witnessed. And this time, one of the orphans was actually present for the entire grisly showdown. Yeah, that lasted, what, three hours or something ridiculous? Horrible amount of time. Yeah. So this. Yeah, yeah, three hours. Yeah. So the scene is the banks of a small pond. And on arrival, the small banded kukri snake's head is actually already inside the toad. But the toad is trying to walk towards the pond. So the toad, despite having a snake with its head buried inside of it, is still trying to get away and get down towards this pond. And at some point, the snake removes its head, possibly to catch its breath, because there's not a lot of air in the inside of a toad. And the toad actually responds. <laughs> Presumably not. The toad sprays this fine mist of bufotoxin-laden poison from these paratoid glands behind the head. Now, that's pretty cool. I didn't know you could actually see a mist when these toads... I always thought it was just like a bit of leakage. Secretion on the surface, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you see yeah, that yeah. in pictures. That's what you I was under the impression of too. In this paper, there's just like mm-hmm. white stuff coating the top of the toad. But yeah, it actually sprayed it yeah. at the snake. And that did seem to upset the snake, which started trying to wipe the poison from its face onto the ground. And then the snake actually retreated under a log where it stayed for 10 minutes. And during this time, it was like trying to clean its face off. The toad used this time, but not that wisely. It kind of retreated a bit towards the pond, but it was too (laughs) slow. And after the snakes had 10 minutes of catching its breath and collecting its thoughts, it came out and grabbed the toad by the leg. But again, the toad's poison stopped the snake in its tracks and the snake retreated away. So the toad's got a second chance. This time it actually seized its chance, jumped in the pond, but foolishly, like an idiot, it swam back to the bank and sheltered nearby under a log, right? So it didn't really take advantage. I mean, you know, it's got sliced open. <laughs> it didn't make a break no. for it. But to be fair, exactly, it's got a hole in it at this point. I mean, how? what do you want from this toad? It's trying. I mean, the overwhelming urge to rest is probably very present in that toad's mind. Horrible. Um, and yeah, sure enough, it's sheltered under this log. And after half an hour of wiping its face and wiggling its jaws around, the snake has presumably removed enough of the poison that it's ready to go back and face the toad again. And sure enough, it came at the toad again. This time, it stuck its head back inside the toad, just began slicing and dicing, removing a lung, pieces of fat, muscle, you know, there's bits of toad streaming out. Sadly, the snake actually couldn't finish its meal, despite all of this chopping it was doing, because a swarm of ants arrived and took over the kill much like the hyenas of the Serengeti, their <laughs> ants came. And oh, I love the idea of hyenas swarming over the over a hill, just just hundreds of them swarming like a cloud of ants. Exactly. One, what a beautiful image. <laughs> the author did try to sort of squirt the ants away with a water bottle, but uh, to no avail. The ants were extremely... Unrelenting. Well, unrelenting, yeah. Unrelenting ants. And sure enough, the ants actually consumed it. I mean, what an observation to have seen. Crazy. Yeah. It would have been quite shocking. But yeah, they did well to just sit and watch and, you know, let it it all take place. Okay, they gave the ants a little spray, couldn't resist. But aside from that, you know, it's all occurred naturally. (laughs) And uh, yeah, there's one final observation where what was thought to be the same snake on the other side of the pond later on another day slicing up the toad this time it sliced the toad left it to die and then returned five hours later to feast on the organs i think the the term feast on organs is is what makes it so macabre isn't it that's what a, what a phrase to choose <laughs> i don't know if that was on the in the paper i think that <laughs> might have been me but 
No, I, I think they just said eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> feasting. But yeah, I mean, pretty wild. Um, and this is a kind of behavior that we usually associate with mammals or birds, right? Like you hear about otters, right. raccoons, Absolutely. buzzards, crows, eating parts Well, and something that develops in these, these animals relatively quickly because there's evidence of uh, birds in Australia dealing with cane toads in this way, only like eating the tongues and livers and stuff. So it's it's something that we see in, uh, I guess, behaviorally or behaviorally uh, flexible species. And it's not something that you would ordinarily associate with a snake, right? Snakes eat their prey whole, their gait limited, and there are very few examples of a snake not just eating their entire uh, prey item in one go. Yeah, because so, prey handling and yeah, having no weird. limbs don't go well together, really. Like doing advanced stuff. Not usually, no. It's... No, you, you pretty much have to get good at one way of eating. Mm. Yeah, and it seems to be, I mean, certainly that paper you authored where it was looking at um, animals in Madagascar which were immune to the venom, or the poison, I should say, of this toad. It seemed as though... I remember reading from that that it was like either animals adapt to eating these toads by becoming immune to the poison or they develop these behavioral sort of adaptations mm, you where got, you learn. Exactly. You've got two options. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You learn to take out the bits. Or, um, I suppose the third option is you do not become resistant, you do not learn, and therefore you eat a toad and die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is also something that happens to quite a few species. So I do think that there is a... I, I, I don't think it's as simple and binary as that, but partly because there's examples like this where you have a snake which is clearly, um, like, I don't think it's 100% resistant because you've got them reacting to getting the toxin on their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're avoiding consuming, you know, the skin and stuff, but at the same time, they're capable of consuming small juvenile toads whole, paratoid glands and all. Um, now, certainly smaller toads have lower doses uh, doses, doses of toxin, but that still implies that there is some level of resistance there. Or at least that that's what it's implying for me. I don't I don't see them even bothering t- going for a toad if it if it's gonna cause them a lot of trouble. And then to have this added behavioural thing on top of it, like if you're resistant to the toxin completely, you could just eat the con- and the whole toad job done. If you've got some level of resistance, then maybe there's a bit more going on here where they're avoiding the worst of the toxins because maybe there's some sort of high uh, metabolic cost to dealing with those toxins, to metabolizing them. So they're optimizing it, but they still have some level of of resistance. Because I certainly remember reading papers where um, people were training, trying to train monitor lizards and quolls i think it was and they would make basically toad sausages for them and the idea was to remove the paratoid glands in the skin the most toxic areas but even that the toxins still exist in the organs and and muscles just at a lower extent so for a snake to actively be going just over those but also dealing with toxins on the way in i feel like they've got to be somewhat resistant yeah and I guess, of course, there is like the issue that the snake, which was seen to eat the entire toad, it doesn't appear again in this paper. So there is still the possibility that it made an error and died, but it just seems unlikely. That's that's possible. That is possible. Um, I mean, in, in, in this, they say they bring up 
um, the papers that have looked at resistance and not resistance, uh, the Avari paper and the um, Hamadi, although well, they actually bring up her thesis, not the um, not the paper, and saying that oligodon is not among them, i.e., it's not resist. It makes it sound like it's not resistant. But double checking those papers, I didn't see oligodon surveyed in those, so I think the jury's still out whether it is or not. Um, and considering the other adaptations that oligodon have, i.e., teeth, which we know they use to pop frogs and stuff and combat that like inflation defensive mechanism for frogs, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some level of resistance. Mm. Yeah. Or com- to be honest, all complete resistance as you know, grass snakes and things do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or near complete, you know, perfectly capable of taking toads. Mm. Yeah. So this is just another case of snakes doing a little bit more behaviour, well, a bit more behaviour, doing slightly more complicated behaviour in terms yeah. of their eating. <laughs> um, you know, there's other, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's other famous examples. There's a few other, well, there's probably like, there's a handful, isn't there, of snakes which take out parts of their prey. You've got the snail-eating snakes. Yes, they had the snail-eating snakes, which is quite a neat example. They had the uh, homolopsid snakes that take uh, legs off crabs. Yeah, or bash them around until their legs and, fall off and then eat them. Right, 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 right. And then we've got uh, typhlod, ty, typhlopoididae. Typhlopoididae? Typhlopoididae. Poididae. Yeah, typhlopoidea, because it's the Ty- super family, Typhlops. isn't it? Yeah, the, the, the blind snakes. The blind snakes, which will chop up little termites. Yeah, eat the guts or squeeze the heads off. Break off heads and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. So it's not completely unheard of, but one thing is for sure that it is definitely uncommon in snakes. Mm-hmm. It's an exception. And pretty fascinating. Yeah, I yeah, I think it's great. and uh, Yeah. Yeah, certainly very cool. If a little grim. So I was looking at the reptile database input on uh, Oligodon fasciolatus, and um, there, was mm-hmm. a, there was a fact on there which I thought I'd quiz you on, whether it was true or false. Okay. <laughs> so it says, true or false? While most species of Oligodon are docile, Oligodon fasciolatus is said to have an aggressive disposition. True or False. Aggressive disposition. I'm going to go strongly false. Strongly false. It's actually allegedly true. Couple of yeah. Well, couple of people I, said this in the 40s and 60s, and I think these days yeah. would probably suggest they're just defending themselves with vigor. Yeah. Let me guess. The snake was aggressive when it was picked up with snake tongs and prodded in the face. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I guess Whoa, it probably seems a lot more aggressive, aggressive snake. when a snake bite. So it's coming right for me. Because yeah. <laughs> most, you know, the majority of times, if you picking up a snake that doesn't have a, you know, a dangerous venom and it bites you, it's pretty inconsequential. And so I guess perhaps the dramatic scenes of blood lent themselves to that description of additional aggressiveness. Yeah, no. I mean, what is an an oligodon's going to have a tough time doing enough damage to to do you in? Yeah. Yeah. I Aggressive, I... No. (laughs) No. But... I shan't have them... Have them described in 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 a way no way <laughs> okay so uh we've had there toads and snakes trading blows now let's talk about humans trading reptiles oh what a segue like that one so this is an article which is still in press right it hasn't actually come out yet 
Well, this episode cannot come out before it comes out. Oh, okay. So it either came out yesterday or today. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. Okay, wicked. So... Because there's a there's a press embargo naturally. Yep, got you. Lardy da. It's a nature paper, man. So um, yeah, so this is going to be published in Nature Communications by our man Ben and also uh, Colin Strine and Alice Hughes. And the title is "Thousands of Reptile Species Threatened by Underregulated Global Trade," and it's coming out in Nature Communications. So have a look for that. Congratulations, first of all. Cheers. Nature Communications yeah, paper. Yeah, I feel a little bit cheeky doing another, another, uh, what's the word? Self, self-promotion-esque. self Mate, you better believe that every uh, paper either of us episode. ever does is coming out on this podcast. <laughs> That's the way it's got to be. <laughs> no one else is going to promote a, well, the careers of lowly herpetologists. we got to do it. There's that, yeah, to be fair, there is yeah. that. you gotta, you got to make your own luck like, uh, sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, I guess. It's good to mention that you didn't insist. Like, yeah. Yeah, this wasn't like, it's not some like mad self-aggrandizing thing. But nah, like I think it's legit to talk about our own stuff. And also, it's like we've got the, we're best positioned to have insights on these things, right? So that's interesting too. Well, I'd like, I'd, can, can, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to hope so considering the amount of work I put in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, I think, well, I'm actually interested in what prompted you to, to undertake this study. What was the kind of... Uh, what kind of triggered it? This was this this was entirely entirely Alice's um, idea. Uh, she attended, um, gosh, what was it? Gosh, one of these one of these, I, I guess you call them conferences, but that's not the right word. Um, these meetings, and basically, oh, it might have even been a CITES CITES related one. Um, CITES being the Convention of International Trade something something Endangered Species. That's the ticket. Yeah, which basically governs what you can. Okay, you can trade those if you get a proper permission. You can not trade those if you can't. All those species, we're not even looking at sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's like a grading system, isn't it? Yeah, for like the necessity of sort of managing the trade. Like, if things are perceived to yes. be more threatened yeah. by trade, then to they go extent. higher on CITES, and there is like appendixes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Basically, there's three of them. One which is like just monitor the trade. One is. Uh, Oh gosh, is it that way or is it the other way around? Um, one is the most one require, You know, you've got set quotas, super, super, like, restricted. One is like zero trade. And one, which I forget which one it is, is like uh, specific countries only uh, are monitoring. Um, but yeah, basically there's this, this hierarchy of how easily things are traded. Um, but yeah, basically Alice was at this this meeting whatever and was sort of put off by the level of representation that herpetofauna specifically reptiles were getting and this whole thing originally started as a hey we should probably write something highlighting that reptiles might be getting missed off international regulation um and then it went down the route of okay so how bad is it some basic stats okay summarize some summarize some stuff that already exists and i was like well what if we what if we actually looked and did a bit more work and actually try to work this out in a little bit more detail. Because what you'll see from a lot of papers that exist now um, for, for like trade assessment things is they're either based on CITES or um, import-export stuff into the US, which we also use in this paper, um, or they're quite local and very, uh, very detailed 
but quite specific. So people have gone out and done very specific market surveys to find out what's being sold on the ground and things along those lines. So there's quite a lot of detail, and then there's these broad stuff, but we're suspecting that the broad stuff isn't capturing everything because we suspect that reptiles are sort of not being looked at as closely as they could be. And we're, well, okay, well, well, we'll give it a go. And that's essentially what we did. Uh, I did a whole bunch of searches in, gosh, how many languages did we do? Five languages, I think it was, in this one. Yep. Um, pulled a whole bunch of sites that were selling reptiles. Um, I reviewed them for the best way of like searching through them in a more automated fashion because I was not going to go through hundreds of websites manually pulling out species. So basically the, the effort was a bunch of reptile sites selling reptiles, a uh, huge chunk of uh, keywords, all like previous names, common names, whatever I could grab from the reptile database, and searched through all those websites looking for keyword hits on certain species, or all species, and uh, sort of summarized that and looked at patterns of what we found. Yeah, so that was sort of motivation and what we did. And then we've ruined, CITES have their own trade database of what they're monitoring. Um, the US has a very good database uh, for what's going in and out of that country called LEMIS, which is something, something law enforcement, management, something, information, something species. Yeah. I forget all these damn abbreviations, so I hate them. But yeah, so we had a couple of trade databases and the stuff we found online, stuck them all together. Um, also used archived web pages to try and get an idea of how online trade had changed over time, which is a little bit rough and ready because the number of archived pages available to us from you know 2019 back, it varies quite dramatically in how many pages are available in each year. So that's a little bit rough and ready. We, you know, you couldn't standardize the sampling really there. But uh, hey, gave us something and it gave us gave us a sort of more, I guess, what's the right word, like legacy idea of how many species were being traded and, and whatnot. And yeah, that's pretty much the, the papers summarizing that data and trying to make the point that we should probably be doing more to uh, keep an eye on what's being traded. Yeah, so the idea really is like to get a handle on what's actually, like in terms of reptiles worldwide, what animals are in the reptile trade. And it wasn't, it's this, this yeah. study is not limited to a particular type of trade, is it? It's trade generally. So that encompasses like not only um, the pet trade, but also, you know, yeah. skin trade, it's, meat it's, trade it's, to some extent. To some extent. Um, it is worth noting that certainly CITES has pretty much all types of trade in it to some extent. Lemis, similar sort of, sort of patterns. You've got the big commercial stuff and you've got smaller, uh, niche stuff. The online trade is pretty much 100% pet trade. Yeah. Um, because if you go searching for reptiles for sale, that's what you get. Yeah. Um, but I think that's also an important aspect to be looking at. Well, certainly, it, our results sort of prove it's an important bit to be looking at because that's where all the species that are being missed by CITES sort of are. Yeah, They're, they're missing pet trade stuff because it costs a chunk of money and effort to uplist species in CITES. So there's this suggestion that CITES is only really looking at big commercial 
trade or things that garner a lot of um, attention and certainly smaller little niche species might be getting missed because of the effort it is to assess them and, and do all the legwork mm. and then the money to get it done. Yeah. So Cites is kind of going for the low-hanging fruit. And I mean, there's like some historical examples which you know, to some extent, you talk about. And, yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's probably a little bit harsh. I mean, of course, Cites are going to be doing their best. But I think like exactly from yeah. where I'm sitting, it looks as though Cites have seen, you know, like historically many crocodilian species were hunted to mm-hmm. near extinction by, yep. by people who were collecting them for the skin trade. And so... There's actually, yep. I thought it was really interesting, your discussion of um, that being like an example of animals being farmed, reducing the impact yeah. on wild populations. Because obviously, crocodile and alligator skin, shoes, bags, etc., etc., are still a massive, massive deal. And it's like, mm-hmm. that represents a crazy high proportion of reptiles that are traded, right? It's like, was it over, was it over 90%? Did I see that in the... I might have just pulled that figure from thin air. But I just thought it was a cool example. I think you've pulled that, that figure from thin, thin okay. air. I don't remember the percentage of stuff which is coming from crocs and okay. things. But the point is, like, it was quite an interesting debate because the debate was obviously had back in, like, the late, well, you know, sort of like, I guess, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, where there was this problem that the... Well, it would have, it would have been post-1978, because 78 is when CITES came into force, I believe. Right. But it was cool because it was like... 75. This this idea that um, captive rearing could be used to offset the demand for wild animals was actually really, really controversial. And obviously, different things have mm-hmm. been adopted for um, elephants and rhinos. Like, the ivory trade is like mostly banned and outlawed. Certainly in the UK, you're not even allowed to sell things which are made of ivory anymore unless they've got like... There's like specific rules regarding their provenance and stuff. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But obviously that didn't happen for crocodiles. They went the other way and they were just like, okay, let's set up these like massive, let's allow a huge trade to sort of take place, Um, which I thought was quite interesting. It kind of shows that like there's a bit of a divide there between the way we're treating reptiles and the way we're treating mammals. Because yeah, I mean, I I guess to a certain extent, the the croc stuff has worked in the sense that they're they're still there. Yeah. they're still uh, Siamese crocs are what critically endangered, I believe. Yeah, I think so. They're extinct in Thailand, yeah, except for so, that one individual, aren't they? Um, not sure about that. They're certainly super, super rare. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh no, you were right. Something like uh, talking about talking about bulk in terms of traded items. Eighty-four uh, percent of traded items are coming from things which are used in. Well, eighty to eighty-three were for like fashion and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so it really does show things like crocodiles, pythons, caimans, whatever, are dwarfing the rest of the trade in sheer numbers of items. Yeah. Um, and it's, one yeah, thing I was going to yeah. mention, like, how many species? How many species did it, did you discover were being traded? Because those are some high numbers. Yeah, just just shy of four thousand. Uh, so we've got 3,943 across all databases in, and the online trade. And that includes lizards, snakes, tortoises, turtles, crocodiles. Any Anything that you would consider a reptile. Amphisbanians. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I suppose that's a silly term to use, isn't it? Because birds are reptiles or whatever. But <laughs> Let's not is, overcomplicate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah reptiles as, as yeah. in common use. Lizards, snakes, turtles, crocs, amphisbania, and uh, turretara. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you've got that. Now, gone. Yeah, I was just going to say this sort of. I'm quite confident in the number, in the number of spe- like I think it's going to be at least that. I'm sure we haven't captured every species ever traded. Um, that being said, the exact list, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room. Because one thing's, so I, I said we searched by a common name, and I know, I'm sure people listening can think of examples where a single common name applied to two species. One of the examples that popped up uh, that was kind of an irritating example is Madagascan giant gecko, which can push you over to Felsuma grandis and a different Felsuma, Felsuma something else beginning with a G. But the point is, one's still around and about, the other one's extinct in the wild, or actually fully extinct. So there are a few instances in this in this species number that I think we've gotten a few false positives, but I think it's almost entirely outweighted, if not pushed the other way with these sort of false negatives of species we've missed, which are in the trade. Because it's this delicate balance of having your search being sensitive enough to pick up weirdly named things that are only coming up via common name, but not to unsent you know, getting that balance basically mm. on on sensitivity. Yeah. Um, and so it seems to me that um, one of the major sort of concerns that you're presenting in this paper is that like there's going to be some species which are described, and then shortly after they're described, and obviously people who listen to this podcast will be well aware that a lot of the species that we describe because we do our species of the bi-week every episode and a lot of those will be like oh yeah it's from this tiny sky island or it's from this one hillside or Mm -hmm. it's like you know Mm -hmm. x y and z and obviously that presents uh, a problem because there's this kind of well you describe it in the paper as a pursuit of novelty which i think is quite neat um and that is just that like there's a certain subset of people who are interested in having reptiles as pets who um, perceive rarity as um, something which is, you know, desirable. Desirable, yeah. yeah and I mean, I think that is actually pretty fundamental to human nature in a way, which is obviously, you know, that is a potential very serious risk to some of these species of isolated ranges. And if there's a species which is newly described and it's got a range which is very limited to, say, a hillside, and a collector goes there perhaps to order um there's a possibility that they could actually do serious damage to that population and we've had that discussion on this podcast because obviously there's yeah. a lot of scientists now who when they publish a species description they'll be like unwilling they'll say look you're not even going to be able to find out where this animal is unless you contact us and give us a damn good reason why we should tell you and we've actually even experienced that ourselves we asked for a paper to cover on the podcast and we were told we couldn't have it because of the fact that it was and eventually we, we subsequently yeah. did get it and actually someone did send it me one of the authors sent it me recently i think uh, after our discussion yeah, with yeah. but you know that's a that's kind of a facet of uh, science you know that we have actually had direct dealings with and that is obviously like a serious concern. So I think like I'm interested in what what do you think the sort of um, outcomes from these findings should be? Well, I think the f- probably the first one is this this idea of 36% of reptile species being traded. Our, our 3,900 plus number is likely smaller than what's going on um, because of these rare weird species getting traded because i'm reckoning for the super rare ones the really weird ones you're probably not going to need to advertise those they're probably going to be someone seeking out someone 
hey, can you go get this species or something along those yeah. lines? That's that's one thing to add. Um, but I think the main takeaway we sort of want people to pick up on is this idea that you can you can go get and trade and you know move around export these species if they're newly described there's no there's nothing really stopping you uh there's no cites regulation for new species it takes multiple years to get something on a cites appendix so it's not a system that can quickly react to newly described species and give them the protection they might need especially if they're small endemics so this idea that people are wanting novel species and we demonstrate in the paper that uh this exploitation or the appearance in the trade can occur very quickly after species being described is a real cause of concern and it makes us think hmm, wait a second shouldn't we shouldn't the system sort of be backwards where trade is not the default basically unless someone's gone out there and said yep this species is viable it's safe then we can trade it instead of the other way around where it's a free-for-all until you spend multiple years and all this evidence to prove that it shouldn't be traded. It just feels like the burden of evidence, burden of sort of proof, is perhaps the wrong way around for for a lot of these species. And certainly it puts a lot of pressure on, like you said, put pressure on people hiding uh, information in science, which is never good. Puts pressure on regulators to try and keep up with taxonomic changes. Imagine if a species gets split, gets split into another genus. Okay, suddenly now it's maybe not on CITES or there's a loophole or maybe whatever. Customs officer is not going to be aware that that was a previously described species of something else, which is on CITES. You know, it creates a lot of opportunity to get around it on sort of weird technical taxonomic grounds, I suppose. Whereas if you switch it to the default being no until you're sure, at least you're safeguarding these newer species, these these endemic species, which might not get the same attention as ones that have been in the trade for a longer time or are being exploited on a large commercial level like, I don't know, some pythons and, and varanids and things. The skins, you mean? Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly what what seems to be the concern is that the, the uh, sort of regulations aren't there for pet trade stuff as is and it's going to take a heck of a effort to do that i mean you know 3900 species we don't really have good population estimates for many of those species in in tropical regions where most of these where most of these traded species are sourced from i mean every, everyone knows you get more reptiles in terms of species around the tropics they're some of the worst studied areas for uh, reptile populations and yet they're the places being where most of these species are coming from. There's this horrible mismatch of we almost don't know what we could be losing if, if things aren't looked at. Mm. And that's the concern. Well, certainly the concern I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, think, I feel like I'm just thinking about like the reality of doing that. And it would be, it would be very hard because you've got to think yeah. like already there's a lot of i mean there's the famous example of the tokay geckos which you talk about in this paper where it's like yeah all the forms all the cites stuff it says three million geckos are being exported mm -hmm. as a result of intensive captive breeding programs and yep. and then some people did some investigations and we talked about it i think when that traffic thing came out or maybe shortly thereafter yeah. and it was like 
well, that's just not possible. There's no way. And so you've got this issue where there's like f- alleged farming or ranching operations, which in actual fact mm-hmm. are just trafficking um, animals which have been caught from the wild. And that's only in cases yeah. where there's like... And, and that's a CITES-covered species, exactly. right? Exactly. Tokes, I believe. You know, that's people keeping... They have a quota. Yeah. And not even the quota's working. So it, it's, it is concerning when you don't even have that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like... And, sorry, go on. Yeah, I just want to bring up the, the sort of other aspect which we haven't actually touched on. Um, this basically trying to get a handle on how much is coming from the wild, how much is coming from captive breeding because there is a legitimate case for captive breeding to reduce uh, pressure on the wild right yeah it, if done right if you're not sourcing your animals from the wild to begin with and things like that you know a lot of these species have sufficient um captive stock that you should never have to take another one from the wild ideally mm. um there was a paper recently about bull python trade and a lot of bull pythons coming out of africa still and I mean, bull python's got to be one of the most captive bred species out there, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but it's got to be in the top five, surely, for snakes. And in those cases, you want well, captive breeding's doing a pretty poor job at reducing that demand, isn't it? That's the thing. And and I think that's where it kind of comes into like because <clears throat> I think this kind of stuff is like uncomfortable for a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast yeah, because uh, it is certainly. Um, for me, like my interest in reptiles all started when I was like a kid and got pet snakes. And it's like from there, the kind of fascination burgeons. And like, obviously now it's yeah. transformed into at least part of my career focusing on studying the animals. And, uh, yeah, there's kind of this like disconnect, um, between mm-hmm. people who have this interest and they're like passionate, you know, intelligent people who, have this interest because of it but then there's this dark side to it and it's i think a lot of people are kind of i don't know i think it's just one of those issues where it's easier to kind of just like bury your head in the sand but also i think it's you have to be careful to um really identify like what the problems are um and try and deal with them you know in in a sort of appropriate way because well i don't know i don't know I just find I think like it's a very nebulous issue at the moment, um, and yeah, it is. And it, you, you run the risk of like alienating people who could definitely do something to help. Like, but it's kind yes. of like how do people kind of um, maintain this interest and kind of enjoy these animals without doing it in a negative mm-hmm. way? And I think a lot of the culture around stuff online, certainly uh, in reptile groups that I've been a part of, things which are like rare or unusual are kind of glorified it's like oh okay so Mm -hmm. i think one example which always springs to mind is that dragon snake from uh southeast asia um xenodermis that's it yeah and you see them come up occasionally Mm -hmm. someone's like yep someone will have one for sale and it's like gone at some exorbitant price but then you never you never see any follow-up on those animals like you just hear that like there'll be a thread and people will just be like oh yeah i had one but it died or whatever yeah, the Javanicus is a is a one that I remember seeing while I was reviewing a lot of these websites to try and work out how to um, search them uh, efficiently. Uh, there were a couple of times Javanicus came up, and it would come with a note of only going to be sold to expert keepers, experienced keepers, whatever, and saying it's very hard to breed in captivity. Uh, you know, the, the the standard sort of spiel of 
this is only going to be sold to people who know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know the the breeding status of of Xenodermus javanicus. I'm I'm not particularly optimistic about it because of the numbers we got back from Lemis and Cites on on rates of wild capture. Um, for snakes, it's forty six percent coming from the wild. For lizards, it's sixty eight percent. From turtles, it's fifty percent. So there is a significant chunk of uh, reptiles coming from the wild. That's that seems to be undeniable. Forty six percent. Like, <clears throat> is that like forty six percent of the individuals? Yeah, yeah. So items which represent individuals. Um, the train da- the trade databases are a little bit tricky to work with. So this would cover. We basically we filtered out all the items that could be multiple items coming from one individual. So partial bits of skin, partial bits of skeleton. Um, we went for things that were like full specimens, live individuals, mm. uh, a complete egg, things like that. But even I was going to say, there's, there's the added aspect of that. That's that's items. That's quite a worrying percent um, of our. Uh, species from Lemis, which I think was around around 3,000 species, 92% of the species had some level of wild capture impacting them. So very, very few had 100% captive right. or, or commercial um, things. And a lot of that is your croc, croc stuff. Yeah. So do you have? there is a real concern there, especially with things like Javanicus, where... The captive efforts are, from what I've seen with, with my stuff, which is you know quite a quite a snapshot. It doesn't leave you optimistic. I'm interested in. Um, you said there was it 46 percent of snakes were from the wild. Is that from mm-hmm. that? Surely must encompass the skin trade and the pet trade. Do you have numbers for the pet trade on what what's coming from the wild? Do I have numbers on the pet trade? Um, live individuals. I have an overall one for live individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, 59% of live individuals were wild sourced. For, for, but that's, that's, every, that's everything. Okay, right. Yeah. But that is excluding your captive ranching operations. So it's just so your crocodile impact there, that's, that's, that's already dealt with, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this, um, this is on, Plus, that's not this is on um, websites of reptile dealers. What is sorry? So the data you collected did it include? It didn't have like a social media element. No, no. When I'm talking about wild capture and stuff, that's entirely from the Lemis stuff. So that's U.S. market imports only. Right. Okay. So I only wanted on imports, what right. I wanted to do originally with the reptile selling websites is to create some sort of automated way of seeing if there was a mention of captive bred or wild caught. Um, and to be frank, the whole thing just didn't work. Um, so we sort of gave up on that aspect. Uh, part of the issue, just through my, my very subjective looking at these sites, is there is very little information to the point of there's a lot of species being sold out there and you don't know exactly what species it is. Um, lots of shorthand, lots of sort of ambiguous species descriptions, uh, very little information about where the animal came from, very little information on... Uh, how it got to where it is, and I think you you so you brought up that people that are buying and selling these animals and stuff. You know, this is because people like these animals, right? Yeah. And I think one of the big failings of this whole endeavor is if you wanted to buy an animal, 
there is very little information for you to gauge how sustainable the animal you're purchasing is. This isn't like getting some free-range eggs or something. They're, they're, it's really hit and miss. And, you know, like we're showing here, the lack of CITES regulation, the light, lack of international uh, tracing to show you where these animals came from, whether they were captive bred, where they, you know, if they were wild caught, did they come from a sustainable population, did they not? It's, it's basically non-existent. Yeah. So you can't even... There's so little capacity to be an informed consumer in that sense. Mm. And I think that really points the finger at, you know, there needs to be some institutional level changes to even enable people to be more uh, ethical in, in, their, in their trading and, and pet ownership. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think uh, I really, I really want to think that, I mean, obviously there'll be some people who just don't care um, and who... Yeah, there always will. And they, you know... Yeah that's just that's just humans but i think i think actually what you've described there a lot of people would really be keen to subscribe to you know like a better understanding and certainly i think i would imagine that a lot of people you know say someone's got a kid who's really interested in reptiles they go to a a dealership or a shop a reptile exotic shop and get them a a royal python bull python uh Mm -hmm. i think a lot of those people would hate to think that that is something that somebody dug out of its burrow in the wild they would hope that it came from a a snake which had been captive bred but from it's captive bred so parents. hard to verify and uh, you just yeah. you can't see it can't tell yeah and i think uh yeah it makes people very antsy doesn't it uh when you start calling for additional regulation of things of which they like yes it and does. uh yeah certainly but i i i think that you if 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 you think about do you want to be doing damage to these animals in the wild do you want to be harming the the long-term viability of this species population or, or, you know, overall overall population. And ultimately, people like those animals, right? Yeah. You wouldn't want to have one in your life if you didn't, uh, if you didn't like them. And I, I think that's an important point to consider is, is what I'm doing damage, you know, damaging the species as a whole? And I, I think in a lot of cases, if you think about it enough, a lot of these individuals, you're going to be quite uncertain whether you are and you're not. And that's, that's worrying. Yeah. And it's not coming from a place of, Oh, I don't care. It's a. Pl- it's coming from a place of it's very hard to know. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognise as well that this isn't in any way attempting to vilify anyone. It's really just like a, hey, look, check this out. Right. We wanted to know what we didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was a concern. You look at the sighty stuff, and you're like, okay, that's. It, it turns out it's like ten percent of reptiles being looked at in any decent detail, and we already know that there's issues with sighty stuff. What's going on behind the scenes? Yeah. Turns out, quite a lot. And turns out it could be quite damaging. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I think of, okay, if someone's making money off something, it's their, uh, it should be their um, prerogative to prove that it's sustainable and not harming what is a, a I suppose, a global, a global resource. It's biodiversity, right? That's everybody's, that's everybody's. It's not for one person to be making a, making a profit off. No, I agree. And that. I, sort of feel that if you're benefiting from it more it's up to you to prove that it's not harming other people's uh you know benefits from that i.e biodiversity and and all the benefits we garner from being on a biodiverse planet yeah yeah i feel like there needs to be a little bit more obligation for people to uh evident like you say evidence that things are sourced in a sustainable way and then i think there needs to be an Mm -hmm. onerous of responsibility on people who come into ownership of things which are you know r- rare or range restricted 
to have a responsibility yeah. to make sure that they're the last people that have to take those things from the wild. I think there's a lot of scope for people, you know, maybe I, I presume there are people listening to this podcast who are thinking about getting a pet, you know, specifically a reptile. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of scope for people to do some investigative work into where they're getting their pets from and really push hard if it is a species which you're even remotely concerned has come from the wild. Don't settle for purchasing it from that person until they can prove otherwise. We, we don't necessarily have to wait for institutional change if everybody gets on board and sort of says, we're, gonna, we're, we're not playing by those rules. If you can't demonstrate that it's not wild caught, you're not getting any business. You know, people people could push for that change. Yeah, and you will get people. There's going to be people who will argue that, um, you know, even snakes, which are commonplace. I'm using snakes as an example because it's what I've got experience with. But snakes, which are now commonplace in the trade, obviously had their forebears taken from the wild, and they were then successfully bred in yep. captivity. And so, yep. for a stream, for a downstream approach to this, like at some point, for every species which is well represented, there needs to be. Uh, some snakes or whatever it might be taken from the wild in order to set up that population and I think it's that which you know needs to be very carefully sort of considered and yeah I mean we're just there's just millions and millions of humans acting as individuals on this issue and uh, Mm -hmm. that's just not the ideal way to go about things there's so many people and it only takes a few to create a demand which could potentially be dangerous for some of these individual species. And so there's Absolutely. definitely an onerous of Certainly responsibility. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely an onerous yeah. responsibility. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I mean, you're not setting out to like bash anyone. You're just trying to make people stop and think. Well, that's exactly what this was. It was a fact, it's a fact-finding mission. It's not a... Yeah. It's a, we were worried about how, how little information there was on reptiles. That was the motivation, was, was seeing the sidey stuff on reptiles and being like, hmm, that doesn't seem very many, considering there are, what, like 11,000 species of reptiles? Mm. And you've got 800 and something, 900, just shy of a 1,000 on sidey, something like that. Yeah. Like, that's, that's not really good enough. Because you, at the very least, you should know what the trade is. Yeah. We're not necessarily saying what's good or bad. We should have some information before making these choices. Yeah. Surely, you know, everybody everybody deserves to know what they're buying at the very least. Mm, yeah, totally. Well, I think um, yeah, fascinating. And uh, yeah, check it out if you uh, Nature Communications. Is this one going to be open access? Oh Brilliant. yeah, yeah, fully fully open access. So yeah. uh, uh, as of now, this is able available for you to read. On the internet so yeah go and check it out um is there any other last things you wanted to add any other last things to add no i mean just to just to reaffirm that like what basically what you said that there is this odd mismatch between people's admiration for these animals and the potential damage to trade and the sort of expression of that admiration can have and it's not a it's not people wanting to do harm for the most part. Okay, there's probably some profiteers in there, obviously, but it's 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 a shame because it it comes from a sort of good place, probably for the most part, on the individual level. But as a as a group, we've got to be very careful about how these things impact uh, species that we know very little about. So, yeah, just. And food for thought, I guess. Yeah, totally. And speaking of species which we know very little about, 
we've got yeah. a species of the bye week. Yes, we do. We have by Bernstein, Bauer, Maguire, uh, Arida, Kaiser, Kalkbusch, and Mech. Uh, 20, another 2020 paper. Oh my god. Mate, this is, this wow. episode is 2020, 2020, 2020. Yeah, haven't done that in a Us while. Us fighter pilot Zutaxa. levels of 2020 vision. We have the molecular phylogeny of Asian pipe snakes, genus Cylindrophis, with a description of a new species from Myanmar. Put that in your pipe and the pipe smoke snakes. it. Yeah, put that in your pipe snake <laughs> and don't put smoke it. Put that in your it. pipe and snake it. Keep them safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I should have said. Yeah, so Asian pipe snakes. Ah, oh, what a group of snakes. Seriously, if you've never seen one of these things, just Google pipe snake pipe snake you are in for a treat they, they comprise a single genus cylindrophis 14 currently recognized species obviously we're about to tell you about number 15 but uh, yeah they're distributed in sri lanka and southeast asia and they're called cylindrophis and they truly are little cylinders they're not that little actually some of them reach up to 87 centimeters but uh <laughs> yeah but they're still they're perfectly cylindrical it's not a joke and yep. um they don't get fatter or thinner anywhere along the body. I don't know if we've... They are just... <laughs> they're just tubes. And... Uh... Yeah, they're just tubes. And their heads look like their tails and their tails look like their heads. <laughs> have we talked about the one we found in Thailand on the podcast before? We must have. It must have come up. I feel like yeah. we must have, yeah. I won't rehash it in too much detail. But basically, we were out on a survey. I think... Um, were you there when we caught it? I don't think... Were you there? I don't no, think so. No, like me, I, I don't think so. Sammy... Matt Ward was there, and then we had a couple of visitors who we'd taken out. It was a long time ago. But anyway, sure enough, we're walking along this creek, and then down on the floor, Sammy just spots this little red creature, and he picks it up, and we're just like, what? And we knew it wasn't a venomous snake, because uh, it was just like so big and fat, and it turned out to be Cylindrophus <laughs> rufus. But still, not exactly the uh, way to go about a snake you're not entirely sure what it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, let's come on. No, we should put that out there. Yeah. Oh, if oh you're not in sure, general, yeah. Don't touch it. If you're not it. sure, don't pick it up. In general, don't touch yeah, it. Yeah, don't, don't pick it up. But um, it was fine. It was a Cylindrophus rufus. And we nicknamed it Sausage Boy because it was literally the most endearing, yep. physical little creature. It did actually turn out to be female, which kind of uh, nullified the, the name. <laughs> but it was very, very, very endearing. And uh, yeah, they're just these perfect little pipes. Little hero. And, um, yeah, they're just mad. One thing which I always find surprising about them is how short their tails are. Like, you've got the vent, and you've literally got, like, a few subcaudal scale rows of the tail, and that's it. Maybe, yeah, maybe, like, three quarters, two thirds of the head yeah, size. Yeah, the poo pretty much comes out the, the end. The tail. As, as close as you're ever going to yeah. get to the poo coming out of the end of a snake, this is it. Um, oh, they're And, great. yeah, these authors... Little stub tails. Yeah, they're fantastic. And these authors... Um, have actually found a brand new species uh, in northern Myanmar. Yeah. Um, and what have they called it? Cylindrophis slowinskii, named for American herpetologist Joseph Bruno Joe Slowinski and his pioneering work on herpetofauna, especially in Myanmar. And what does this snake look like? How would you describe it? Well, um, well you can't tell which end's which to begin with. They're both sort of 
little stubby ends like we've described. It doesn't really get far or thinner throughout the entire length. It's this lovely, rich, shiny black, a little, little bit of iridescence it appears, with quite mm, messy uh, white banding along it. Uh, very, very thin white bands, not always matching up, going all the way to the end. Tail's, tail's very neat, because on the underside of it, you've got this beautiful orange and black sort of patterning. This this almost checkerboard. Almost. It's it's like if you could if you were to stretch it out it would look like a checkerboard, but because the tail's so short, it's more just like a black splotch. Yeah. On a on a orange background. Which I believe is part of their aposomatic signalling, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, I mean they flatten themselves out and they flash the surprising colours on their tail around. The one that we found did yeah. that. Yeah, really. And also, it kind of like, they arch the tail and it, it looks more like a head as well. It almost looks like a little mini cobra head in some cases. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can see what they're going for. Mm. But at the same time, these guys are little. Uh, talking sort of 33 centimetres SVL with an extra 7 millimetres of tail. So when we say the tail is 2% of the rest of the mm. body. And they are fossorial. They're like cruising around oh, they yeah. like it wet you can't imagine these guys in the trees no, they like it wet they're sort of mostly underground they've got these tiny little beady eyes really close to the front of their heads big blunt heads well i say big all, small all blunt, better to see small you blunt with. head no distinction head and neck they are literally <laughs> underground specialists or or sort of leaf litter rocky sort of specialists um they know a little bit about the sort of um Ecology of Cylindrophis slowinskii. Um, all the type specimens were found under logs in forests, so it's su- assumed to be a secretive forest dweller with a semi-fossorial lifestyle, much like most Asian pipes. Snakes. What do you crypto crypt, crypto? There's a secretive lifestyle word, which I have. I thought I had. Now I started crypto, saying it. And it left cryptophile. Me. I mean. Yeah, I guess that works. That's not what I was thinking of, but it works. Crypto. There. Whatever. <laughs> Crypto something. Mm, this is a very interesting word. You usually beast out the uh, obscure. Yeah, not today. Not today. I've searched for crypto lifestyle, and uh, obviously all that's come up with is people making their livings off cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the pipe snake... If the pipe snake had opposable thumbs, you could you could bet your ball and Bitcoin that he would be exploiting Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Just as easily. Just as easily. Um, but yeah, so there are another species of little... Cryptozoic. Cryptozoic. Nice. Mm-hmm. There you go. I just needed the power of Bitcoin to inspire nice. me. Nice. Um, that's really cool. <clears throat> yeah, and so the, this paper also includes like an updated phylogeny of uh, pipe snakes, which if you are... Pretty much the first, right? Weren't they saying it's the first one to include more than two species or something? Oh, wow. I mean... I think, I think they were saying it's quite a considerable step forward in pipe snake study. Our understanding of pipe snakes has just been advanced dramatically. And uh, if you're intrigued mm-hmm. by who's related to who, then yeah, check it out. Um, some nice maps of all the different uh, things. Some beautiful pictures of some different cylindrophus too. Oh yeah, they've done really well. Like someone should do a mm-hmm. cylindrophus poster. I'd buy that. Totally, totally would love to own a cylindrophus pipe snake poster, and then I could. The pipe snakes could be like the last thing I f- see before I s- fall asleep. <laughs> to dream of pipe snakes, <laughs> beautiful. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Like 
brand new Cylindrophis Slowinski I. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Sweet. Any other business this week? Um, yeah, actually. Ooh. Um, because one bit of self-promotion isn't enough, we actually have a new preprint out that uh, was headed up by Sam Smith, her master's project on the movements of Burmese pythons in and around where we are here in, in northeast Thailand. Yeah, it's, it's on BioArchive. People can read it if they want. Seriously, if anyone's not reading that, what are you doing? Because Burmese pythons, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're, they're wicked, right? Everyone knows Burmese pythons. Most people have probably actually seen one in the flesh and they're gigantic and beautiful and wicked in all regards and so now for the first time we have some understanding of what they do in their native habitat really through radio well there were a couple of couple of small studies uh on their native movements there's quite small tracking durations and this one's much longer it's i think six individuals if i remember correctly but the cool thing is sam managed to get out there almost every day like barely missed a day for a lot of these individuals. So it's a really nice movement data set, which has pulled out some sort of neat findings, maybe not as unexpected, but um, still cool to see it properly verified and properly done, where, guess what? Burmese pythons like water bodies, or certainly appears so, and um, they're quite lazy, and they'll reuse the same shelter site quite frequently. So... Bunch of legends. A couple of nice things. Bunch of legends. Yeah, and, uh, lazy, water-dwelling monster snakes. And I've got to commend you on that Burmese python graphic as well. Is that yours? It looks like your work. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Burmese python so drawing good. is, is, is I love mine, that. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll look at that paper in detail at some point in the future, for sure, on here. Give it yeah. a good rundown. Yeah, probably let it go through peer review and whatnot, and then we can have a chat about jolly, it. Jolly, jolly good. Um... I've also got some any other business. So uh, if you remember last episode, I was butchering the name of uh, a town called Quax Tlahuacana. Yes. Quax Tlahuacana is how it's pronounced. So we were talking about it last week because there was a new species of Belita Glossa. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Basically, we had a couple of people message us. So thanks very much, Rob Stone and Josh Odin. And um, I think we should just insert Josh's pronunciation into the podcast here. Quaxtlawakana. There it is. Very good. Wouldn't you agree? Excellent. I, re- <laughs> I really appreciate being corrected on these names. Yeah. Because it's so... I mean, you did you did look for how to pronounce it online. Yeah. Some some of them you just can't find, and that's... I mean, I could have gone the route of like just looking at how you pronounce each individual element properly, which would have been probably the good thing to do. But you know, I mean, it's better to just have people who know Josh Odin's pronunciation, wicked. Yeah. So yeah, big up, thanks guys, and uh, yeah, oh, nice to think about that. Thank the Glosser yeah. again, a pretty shiny black salamander. Um, also, we had a correction, Jay Walton on Twitter. Hey, just want to let you know. You refer to Cuban night animals as part of the night lizards. There is a genus commonly called the Cuban night lizard, but night animals are Dactyloidae. So that was my bad. Um, I called Cuban night so, animals. It's not. They're different to Cuban night lizards. Ah, um, well, that okay. it's so obvious now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I feel like I feel like there was there was doubt cast upon the. Like how sensible that naming was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think part of our our gut knew that something was yeah, weird. Yeah, I was like, but... 
uh, we also weren't going to uh, you got to keep it rolling you got to keep it rolling yeah. um, you do you do and you do. then finally uh, a note from Ty Iper author of A Naturalist's Guide to the Snakes of Australia she got in touch and mm-hmm. she has created a new Facebook group called Her Purs Her in capital letters which is a very famous popular movement um, from women in herpetology and the idea behind her Facebook group is to have women all over the globe join, share their experiences, achievements, collections, works, as well as provide a forum for women to exchange information on herps. So if you've got an interest in herpetology, go over to Facebook. I'll put the link in the description. And uh, if you're a lady, I think join. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, finally, new patrons. There's a few. We got Tanya Corliss, Lars Ukeson, oh and Brandon Barassa back in the game so yeah thanks very much all of you guys yeah thanks guys much much appreciated Oof. and um brandon also has a podcast uh it's called happy hour field guides and we actually appear in episode one so i'll put a link to that if you want to hear us in a Ooh, slightly different context yeah and uh, it's a great great podcast he interviews a bunch of people about various elements of research and uh I mean, yeah, Brandon's a great guy. It was really good talking to him. So check out his podcast. He's got a fantastic yeah. voice. Like he, yeah, his voice for radio. I mean, and he's not to say he's not a good looking guy, but like I find, yeah, yeah, it really does. Like we're just like these annoying, nosy little <laughs> English wimpy boys, and then he's like this rich baritone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, need to go. Anyway, swap voices. <laughs> I think that's just about it for this episode. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a lot of ev- any other business. I feel like it's a few papers with all sorts of emotions and feelings about all three of them, from disgust to ambiguous confusion to just pure joy. <laughs> it's been a roller coaster. It has been a roller coaster. Um, it's been a pleasure, though. And so I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. We saw a beautiful, beautiful little uh, Kalula poultry this morning. Oh. Like the size of a 50 pence piece sitting in the middle of the uh, path. Oh. Just all covered in mud. Just sitting there. What a treat. Scooped it up and got it out of the way so it didn't get stepped on or squished. It's lovely. That's some good Kalula work. <laughs>